You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Linnon. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Jason Barnwell, Assistant General Counsel at Microsoft. Jason leads Microsoft's legal business operations and strategy team. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Well, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters, Westlaw Edge. Thank you, Thomson Reuters. So Jason, you're an assistant general counsel at Microsoft, but you also lead Microsoft's legal business operations and strategy team. Can you tell us a little bit about your role? Happy to. At a very high level, our team is charged with trying to figure out how to build the practice of the future for Microsoft. And we have specific teams within our our team that focus on different elements of that. So, for example, uh, we have a legal business team that's led by Rebecca Benavidez, and they really do a lot of the engagement work that you would think would be conventionally applied to how you would do business. We have a legal operations team that's led by Tom Orison, and they design, build, and operate the machines that provide the support for the practices that we are trying to advance. And the last pillar is what I focus on. It's strategy. And it's trying to look a little bit further out on the horizon and and think about what's coming and think about how we can plan to be ready to address the challenges that are coming because our business that we support, Microsoft, it keeps moving faster and it has a very, very dynamic cadence to it. And so we realize that we need to make some investments and think about how we're going to practice in the future so that we can stay with our clients and make sure that they get the legal counsel that they need. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to this role? Yes. I started at Microsoft practicing in the product group. And the way we we work at Microsoft is we have attorneys and other legal professionals who are embedded uh, with the engineering teams. And so they work with them directly. And so I came in and that was my starting place, which felt very close to home for me because I was a software engineer. And that process lets you see very closely how we actually make the products that we deliver to customers. And it's kind of the core of of where we come from, what we do. We're fundamentally a tools and platforms company, if you really go back through our history. And so that's where I started. And when you are doing uh, work that supports engineering teams, it tends to be uh, a very high volume practice because you get to be asked questions by pretty much anybody in the engineering team that you serve. And so you start 
thinking about ways that you can execute your practice with efficiency. And so that's where I really started on the journey of thinking about how can I change how I practice so that I can keep up with these folks? Because engineers can be very demanding customers. They, they often are highly curious. They ask great questions. And so we needed to start thinking about how we were going to scale our practice. And so when I joined eight years ago, it became clear that if I was going to be able to, to serve those folks, I was going to need to be creative and think about how I could bring innovation and efficiency to my practice. And then if we fast forward uh, several years later, I was asked to take on uh, law firm engagement strategy, which was really thinking about how are we going to work differently with our outside counsel to bring those complements, uh, efficiency and innovation uh, to, to that dimension of our partnership. And so I've been doing that for about a year and a half. Um, and then in February, an opportunity arose to add legal operations to that portfolio. And so that's how those pieces came together. But it's a it's a very curious thing to me because I don't have uh, what one might consider a, a conventional background for this. I, I was, before doing this work, um, practicing attorney. And so I, I was just one of those practicing attorneys who need to figure out how to uh, adjust his practice. And now I'm trying to figure it out at scale. Well, that's interesting that you'd say you were just one of those practicing attorneys. I, I understand what you mean about the changes and the challenges, but I mean, you had a little bit of a different background having been an MIT educated engineer in this role and, and uh, a software engineer. I mean, when you talk about the skills, I guess, kind of needed for, for your role, what do you think is really required to be successful in, in, in the position that you're in? The things that feel truly necessary to me are a deep curiosity about how things work. And when you think about how you're going to change, <laughs> you know, the practice, uh, whatever that practice is, it starts off with having some facility, some understanding of what the work actually looks like. And the only way to get there is to kind of go and dig and, and see, like, what are the motions? What are the fundamental inputs? What are the outputs? What are the key artifacts? Things like that. And so I think it starts off with, with a deep curiosity. And then you need to start adding on, I'd say, like process and systems level thinking. And so when I say process, I mean, being able to identify what are the repeatable steps what are the, the things that people do that are part of producing whatever is the output, whatever the outcome is? And when I say systems level thinking, it is not stopping your inquiry at what you perceive as the boundary of the work. You want to figure out what does it connect to? What does it touch? What supports it? And so if you combine those things together, you start to have a, a process, a repeatable process that you can apply that starts helping you devise solutions because the the end game on all this is to figure out what is the job to be done and how can I make that happen more efficiently with more uh, innovation with more insight because everything we do in this work is really designed to facilitate the more effective delivery of legal services and that is a very human-centric process and anything we can do to facilitate that to support that to accelerate it to elevate it that's what we're focused on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk about looking for repeatable processes, be, uh, steps and processes, and um, especially you as an attorney at Microsoft. And I know I worked in a big law firm, and I think frequently we kind of get obsessed with the idea that process is really about 
commoditization of work and the idea that, well, I'm not doing commodity work, Jason. You don't really understand. You know, I, I handle these special snowflake problems and, and what you're talking about really doesn't apply to the, the work I do. How do you respond when people kind of bring that mindset to you? I get that all the time. And I, <laughs> I was recently at an event where uh, there was an attorney from another company and uh, we started talking about what we did respectively. And she was a litigator. And I started saying, oh, well, that's interesting. And I started asking about her practice and what she did. And I, I started asking these questions, which started walking down the path of, oh, so what are the common patterns? And she had what literally an allergic reaction where she started saying, I don't want to talk about this. And she basically walked away because it's clear it started to activate something in her that was like, you're trying to reduce what I do to something that is commodified, that is this basic thing. And that's not it at all. So, so much of what we do that has the highest aesthetic attached to it is still made up of a, a series of repeatable processes. If you go to an amazing dinner cooked by a world-class chef it doesn't diminish the fact that there's this artistry going on to realize that much of it is excellence born out of being able to deliver superior quality over and over again with a process. And that it is only by going through and really thinking about what are the key things that we do repetitively that we start being able to see the patterns that help us figure out what are the parts of this that really matter? And more importantly, where can I apply my creativity as a human to deliver the most value to this? And so, you know, attorneys, we really regard ourselves as craftspeople, right? Like we relish in the details. We love that. And what I would like to see us do is have more time to spend our effort on the details that matter. Because there's so many pieces that are often not that interesting that we have to do to get to the good stuff. And so success for me looks like finding ways to get our folks focused on more of that good stuff that I think they really enjoy and they, they derive deep satisfaction from. And so I understand that that is the natural response for many people who are in our profession, but I just see it a different way. And I think that finding ways to, to strip out the parts that you know can be done in other ways elevates the work that's left and lets us focus more of our attention on the parts where we can deliver the most value. Yeah, that's, I mean, and that's a really exciting message to me. I, I mean, I think so much of the discussion around this, sometimes we get focused on just efficiency and we don't talk about improving quality and getting better outcomes and, uh, you know, kind of this freedom then to spend more time on the things that really matter and in, in the work that we do. Exactly. I think related to all of this, uh, I'm really interested. I, I know you just led a trusted advisor forum uh, for Microsoft's law firms and other legal services providers. Can you tell us what was the purpose of this forum? Sure. The, the purpose was to bring perspectives together to think about how we can do our work a little bit differently. So one of the, the challenges that we have is that by and large, our legal services partners will mostly bring us only what we ask for. And so as much as we would like them to proactively bring us all these fantastic ideas, I'm learning that we have to put a little bit more structure around that. And we have to, with some specificity, invite them to think about how can you be doing your work with and for us a little bit differently. And the Trusted Advisor Forum was an attempt to really provoke that and stimulate that. And we structured a little bit differently. 
what we did was we sent out uh, basically uh, uh, effectively a specification of, hey, here's what the event's going to be. We'd like you to think about something that you did uh, looking backwards uh, that you would like to talk about, and ideally something that you want to do looking forwards that you'd like to talk about, and do some pre-writing on that. Give us a, a one-page memo that really rolls it up. And then, this is where it got a little bit wacky, we brought them here, and we had them present in front of each other. And we had them present in front of other folks from the industry. And we had other folks in the audience who could see and provide critique and provide thoughts. And it was really interesting to see how they responded. And it was great. And the other advantage is I think it brought a little bit of a platform for the folks who are doing this great work in these firms to bring their work forward. And it was great for the other potential clients because then they realized like, oh, you could do this for me too? And the answer is absolutely. Because what we really want is not to have a bunch of bespoke tools that only work for us. We really want our firms to start thinking about solutions that work for lots of different clients. Because we view our engagement with our outside counsel as a partnership. And the partnership is not built on getting over on them and beating them. It's the idea that we can work together and be productive and we can be successful together. And to the extent that there is uh, a, an approach, uh, a tool, a process, a system that they can bring to our work, but that they can also apply to other clients' work to bring that efficiency and that innovation, that is a good thing for us. And so we are trying to do more of our work in the open and bring our partners forward to try to get them to do a little bit more of their work in the open so that we can start changing some of the behaviors. Um, because again, unless we ask, we don't see things change and we don't see new ideas brought forward. So we're going to try to keep asking. And that was what the Trusted Advisor Forum was. What was your uh, response to how what you got out of it? Were you happy? Where Did you see from the law firms kind of what you were hoping to see? Or, or where do things stand kind of, would you say? I think it was a good start. And it's a muscle that we have to build. There are some firms that are well on their journey and they have a lot of the internal capabilities necessary to really start bringing the best of what they have to our work. And there are other firms that, you know, they've got a little bit further to go. And we saw that variety represented in the, the presentations that, that came up. And the thing is, there's so much room for everybody to improve that even the firms that are starting a little bit further behind it's not like the gap is so huge that it's insurmountable. And I hypothesize that for our partners to thrive and, and be vibrant in the future, they're going to need to develop this muscle because that is where the industry is heading. And so I hope that they regard these opportunities as true partnership and, and an invitation to help them evolve and thrive for where the future is going and not something that we're pushing on them because the goal really is to work together to figure out how we're going to deliver legal services to Microsoft better. Yeah. You know, I think this question about that's where the industry is heading is a, is a tough one to kind of to measure into some, I mean, I guess lawyers tend to be skeptical and, and maybe certain skeptical people we should stop trying to convince perhaps. But on the other hand, even for people who have a, a reasonable amount of skepticism, I, I hear some of them say, well, gee, how much of this is just hype? And when you scratch the surface, Dan, law firms aren't actually doing anything. I mean, what is your sense kind of really of the marketplace as far as what law firms, how seriously are they really taking 
this call for innovation and, and new ways of doing things? A lot of the effort I see looks like marketing. It doesn't always have much substance behind it. And it is when you ask for the application of whatever that thing is that they're offering you to your work, when you have to see execution, that's when it gets real. And that's when it gets real interesting, too. And, you know, let's let's be honest about this. If you are operating uh, a cost plus business that lets you lay the risk of, you know, going over a little bit on your clients and further that business is basically an annualized cash business that scrapes out all the earnings every year and your organization is a partnership that's operated by folks who often have a five-year departure horizon the incentives just don't really line up to support innovation it just doesn't and so a lot of what we're fighting is gravity uh, gravity that's pulling people in other directions. And I'm often intrigued by people who seem to remark that the folks at law firms are not paying attention or you know, somehow they're not smart enough. That, that, that's crazy. These are smart, clever folks. And what they're doing is they're responding to the incentives that they live in. And so within that context, it's completely rational, the behavior that they're they're undertaking. And so that's why a lot of what we think about is how we can change the incentives, how we can change the physics of the realm to start drawing people in slightly different directions. Because it is true that a lot of what we see, it looks nice, but then the question becomes, who have you actually done this for? Who is using this thing that you're offering? How does it work for them? Can I get a client reference? And I would say that this is something that is is worth asking for any potential partner, whether you're talking about a a conventional law firm, an alternative uh, service provider, a tools vendor. There's nothing that replaces, okay, this is great. Who can I talk to that you've done this for? And the answer may be, you know what? We don't have anybody yet. You're going to be our first implementation partner. And that can be fabulous. That can be a fantastic thing. But then you want to make sure that the resources that are being applied on the partner side are adequate so that it's going to have a good chance at success. And so these are some of the things that we think through when we are looking at potential partners for all kinds of of work that we do, whether it's uh, kind of conventional, legal, or if it's some of the more out there stuff that we're, we're looking at. Well, talking about the incentives uh, and maybe connecting this to the Trusted Advisor Forum, because, you know, I, I don't my understanding based on some uh, articles I read is not all of your law firms accepted this offer to participate, which is kind of shocking to me, frankly. But I also hear sometimes when I talk to law firm lawyers about, uh, you know, not this initiative specifically, but just much more generalized. Sure, law firm or, or legal departments want to talk about innovation and collaborating and growing the pie. But in the end, it just comes down the price and there's actually no payoff in the end. So, you know, how do you get to a point where when you put an offer like this, you have 100% of firms beating down your door to be there and then show them the, the concrete payoffs of, of working with you. So to be clear, there was no guarantee of work uh, that was associated with what we offered, right? I mean, it really was an opportunity to effectively pitch, here are things that I could be doing for you, but 
that's often how more work shows up, right? I mean, we, we think about this tip, the typical uh, sales cycle for legal services, and it almost always starts off with some kind of relationship and then some demonstrated need, and then the market forces connect each other and things move forward. So I did find it interesting that some of our partners opted out of the experience because, again, these folks are are not they're not stupid, right? Like they're smart people. And so I presume that they must have been doing the calculus that the upside of this was not worth whatever they regarded as the downside risk. And I don't know what's in their heads when they're doing the calculus on that, but we backfilled those spots with some other firms. And those firms are now getting work because they showed up and they made relationships. And then now we see the conventional sales cycle uh, engage. The other thing that's uh, just interesting to note is as we think about how we will construct our panels going forward. Uh, so our, you know, we have a, a strategic partner uh, program that is our primary U.S. domestic panel. And as we think about who should be on that panel, we have data about engagement, right? And we know who is showing up and who is bringing forward interesting ideas and who is bringing forward, you know, talented folks and who is trying to, to move forward with us. And so when we review who should be a member and who should have an opportunity to move forward with us, we will examine this information because it's instructive to us. Yeah. Kind of going down this same line of, of what's expected of law firms in this ecosystem, how would you define innovation and, and what is it that you are really expecting from your law firms and, and the lawyers within those law firms? Well, there are so many ways to define innovation, but for us, a lot of it comes down to some pretty basic things. Like, can you find a way to deliver your legal services that is just more efficient? You know, it, and it doesn't have to be these... It's so much of uh, what we, we hear when we think about innovation is, how can I throw more AI at it and things like that? We think about innovation really as a, a multidimensional process. And a lot of it starts off with some basic process mapping and thinking about, okay, what are all the steps that happen to deliver whatever the outcome is? Um, and really, how does that map to the job to be done? And it's after that process that we start thinking about, okay, well, gosh, there's a bunch of steps here which could probably be accelerated with some type of tooling experience or that we could take these steps out because there is a process that we can shorten up and tighten or there are just things that we're doing now that we, we don't even have to be doing. And so, so much of how we think about innovation here is really trying to serve the job to be done. And then that breaks into a couple of different, let's just say tracks. And I think uh, Bill Henderson has a fantastic post out on Legal Evolution where he talks about what are effectively the, the type uh, zero and the type one innovations, which are more or less innovations that are, you know, kind of on the front end of something that is new. And then the other side of that is, or probably more conventionally regarded as sustaining innovations. So what, what's the kind of radical things that didn't exist before where you're, you're doing something that's just greenfield and how are you taking processes and, uh, and refining them and making them much more efficient. And so there is, I, I think, a process to innovation that it goes back to, I think, a lot of what I was talking about before, which is really decomposing 
what are the processes that serve the job to be done and what how can you do that more effectively both making the humans more efficient by giving them for example a playbook a decision framework something that you know allows them to accelerate how they do their work and then ultimately when you start having adequate scale how can you start creating tooling experiences that accelerate that further and then when you start bringing in tooling experiences you're often starting to capture data at scale and when you start having data at scale then things start getting really interesting, right? Because now you can start moving into some of the more modern technologies that can really, really accelerate and bring all kinds of insights to how you do your work. So for me, uh, you know, when we, we talk about innovation, it starts off with some of the more basic building blocks. But when you take those seriously and you're disciplined about them, you end up getting this compounding effect that takes you up the ladder to some of the more uh, august uh, things that people, I think, conventionally associate with uh, innovation. So a related question on that is that I think at some firms, the lawyer's lawyer and then their allied professionals to help with different things like project management and technologists, things like that, which is great. And, and I think, I mean, clearly allied professionals are playing a large role in innovation. But, you know, to what extent does the lawyer, him or herself, the, the subject matter expert, need to be engaged in this process for a law firm to actually be able to, to innovate? So the short answer is deeply engaged because the lawyer should be the architect, right? So I'm often intrigued. I had a conversation uh, last week where I was basically talking to one of my colleagues and we got into, uh, I wouldn't say it's an argument, we, we had a discussion about how do you know if somebody's a good lawyer, right? Like what, what are the indicia? And for me, there's some kind of basic things that I like to see. And one is they can explain why why are we doing this? Why, what, what are the fundamental rules that govern this? Like if you're, if you're talking to me about risks, where do they come from? What shape do they take? What magnitude do they have? Just some of that basic kind of analytical framework tooling. That is what I look for when I think, man, that person's a really good lawyer. And, and if they can communicate that crisply, I'm like, wow, their lawyer knife is really sharp. That's great. If that person can then describe that, document it, that is the next step. Because ultimately what we wanna be able to do is partner these attorneys who really are the architects of whatever the process is that is their core practice. And we wanna partner them with these allied professionals so that we have people who can then operationalize that excellence at scale. But that only happens if the attorneys are willing to partner and, and willing to meet people who can you know make them superheroes by giving them these amazing processes and tools where they are. And so I think this is a part of the discipline of, of law that we don't do and we don't really teach and we don't really learn that needs to change. And so we're doing a, a small experiment internally to see if we can start moving people uh, along that path. And it's going to take us a while, but we'll see if we get there. That sounds really interesting. And I want to follow up on that, uh, Jason. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge is the most intelligent legal research platform ever. Powered by state-of-the-art artificial intelligence. Westlaw Edge delivers the fastest answers and the most valuable insights, providing you with a clear strategic advantage. 
The advanced features on Westlaw Edge allow legal professionals to practice with a greater degree of certainty and confidence never before available. Visit westlawedge.com to learn more. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. This is Dan Linna, and I'm here with Jason Barnwell, Assistant General Counsel at Microsoft. And Jason, just before the break, we're talking about the challenge of, of measuring the quality of lawyers. Uh, what kind of things are you doing at Microsoft to, to really get a little bit more rigorous and scientific on that topic? So we are in the process of changing how we create our outside counsel matter engagements. And as part of this, we are starting to think more deeply about how we measure quality. And our basic approach is to start collecting more feedback from our buyers, from the folks who actually originate the matters and do the work with our outside counsel. And the way that we're operationalizing that is we have a Power App. Uh, and so a Power App is a really clever cross-platform mobile application development uh, technology that we make that lets you take things like SharePoint lists and create these really clean, snappy, uh, slick interfaces. And so we now have this and we can send it to our in-house folks and we can say, you seem to have done some work with outside counsel. Tell us about how that went. And the experience that we have looks a lot like a rideshare app in as much as it's got a few different categories like, uh, you know, value and uh, Microsoft knowledge, legal knowledge, responsiveness, things like that. And we also have free text so that people can tell us about what the, how the experience went. And so now we're starting to collect this uh, at scale, and this is starting to give us some insights as to how people feel about the work that they're buying. The other thing that we've done is we've started to take that information and feed it back into the matter selection process so that when, when one of our people decides that they want to go partner with outside counsel on a matter, they go and they have an experience that's not radically dissimilar from Amazon. So when you go to Amazon and you pick a product, it'll often show you other options. And that is what we are giving folks. We're, so for a given work area, we will offer uh, a series of who we think are, are good options for them to be partnering with. And then and there are different rows for each of the prospective partners, will show information like their feedback scores, uh, diversity scores, uh, their panel status, uh, how they're doing on our security audits, all kinds of information that we hope can help them make better choices because we operate at adequate scale that if we're smart and clever about collecting more of this information, we think we can create more value because not not because we're driving against something specific to price, but we can find the partners that can do the work more efficiently and more effectively. And so that's what we're trying to do. So when it comes to more effectively, are you trying to gather data to kind of measure outcomes? I mean, I guess we think of litigation matters right away, but no reason why you couldn't do that in a whole host of matter types. Are you, are you trying to measure that in some way? We're not doing that yet. We're basically using some of the, I would say, the, the standard proxies. But as we start doing a better job of mapping out uh, how we do our work here, so we're probably going to undertake a pretty serious knowledge management uh, process eh, starting probably in the new year. 
as part of that, we will really start going deep and, and we'll be targeted at first and try to really think about what is the shape of work? What is the shape of work in a, in a given practice? And specifically, what are the inputs? What are the transforms, the things that people do to them? What are the outputs? And then ideally, what is the impact? So one way to think about that is, was it a successful litigation matter? You know, did the exposure come in under what we expect? Did we get something? Uh, that was the disposition what we thought uh, we should get? But where I would like to take this ultimately is really trying to map more of the work that we do, both in-house and with our outside counsel partners. And over time, finding ways to map that to, I'd say, just let's just call it business value. And at that point, we can start doing some really interesting things. But I'll be honest, that's going to take us a long time. So that's a very aspirational view. But in the near term, we probably can do some things uh, that would help people understand value. So for example, in the litigation context, I think you, you gave something that's very uh, tractable for a lot of people. But uh, in the commercial context, one thing I would like to be able to show eventually is how long did it take to get the deal closed? right? Like, was the velocity of this deal what we would expect? Do people feel good about that? Was the partner an accelerator? Did they help clear issues quickly? Did they move us forward? But to do that, I'm going to have to work very closely with our practice groups because so much of what dictates value and quality is very domain specific. And so I'm not convinced that I'll be able to come up with a really exquisite one size fits most that gets to that business value level. But at least in the near term, we can probably abstract to a place where people could at least, you know, say, was it good? Was it bad? And here's why. And then over time, as we get more uh, sophisticated, we'll start uh, breaking that into something that has more detail to it. Yeah. Well, and when we talk about innovation, so much of it is just getting started and that this is probably an example of it, right? Just getting started. You're going to learn so much on your journey here. We hope so. <laughs> what about, have you thought about or started introducing 360 reviews in any sort of way, having your law firms kind of um, assess you as a, a client or, or how matters are handled, anything like that? So some of the practice groups will do deep dives, especially on a specific matter, the larger matters. But I would not say that we currently do something that looks like what I would regard as a conventional 360, which you know often involves a very detailed uh, survey and then very detailed interviews, in part because that requires a whole lot of work. So that might be something we should think about is how we would do that. But with the current spread of uh, firms that we have, it would be hard to do that at any scale. And so at most, that would start off as uh, an experiment uh, to think about, okay, what can we do to uh, partner more effectively? I will be going and visiting several of our partner firms, uh, most likely in the new year, um, where I will be taking the feedback that we've gathered, and I'll be going on site and saying, hey, here's some things we've learned. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Are there ways that you think that this could help you do your work more effectively? Are there things that we are doing on our side that are getting in the way of you delivering more value? Because what we learn is the data are interesting and instructive, but in many instances, it mostly gives us better questions to ask. It is often the case that data do not 
necessarily answer the questions. They just give you better targeting for conversations that get you to root causes that get you more value in the long run. You know, going back to your points earlier about incentives too, and working with law firms, I know Microsoft announced that it wants to move 90% of its legal work to alternative fee agreements within the next two years. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that looks like structurally, but maybe more importantly, why Microsoft is going that direction? Sure. So we have a lot of varieties of alternative and value-based uh, fee arrangements that we are using. So they range from portfolio level uh, agreements to fixed price unit work to points-based systems to success fees. So there are many varieties that give us uh, real creativity on how we ad address you know, what makes sense for a, a given uh, type of work. But you did go after the most important thing, which is why. And there's a thought experiment that guides me when I think about this. And it comes down to something that sounds like if I ask outside counsel the same question twice and I get the same answer twice and they get to bill me twice, are we really aligned? Are we really in a place where they have what they need to be innovative and efficient that's, that's drawing them towards that? And I don't think so. And so much of what we're doing is really focused on trying to make sure that we have aligned incentives so that we are working together. And one of the things that's interesting for me is we are seeing that when we use these alternative fee structures, it actually supports better partnership because you don't have the shackle of the billable hour getting in the way and you don't have people looking at the clock. It gives them more latitude to think about, hmm, I should spend more time learning this or spending, I should spend more time with my client. But the other thing is it gives them a situation where they can win because if they develop a more efficient or more innovative way to do something and they're already going to be guaranteed a certain amount of money, then they can beat the house. And that is a good thing. We actually regard that as success because we want our partners to benefit from that kind of investment and we want them to benefit from being innovative and being efficient. So we hope that we start to see, you know, that this is a good thing, not just for us, but also our partners regard that as a good thing for them. One thing that was, I wouldn't say it was a surprise, but I, I didn't really think through enough when we started on this journey was we're also asking our internal folks to do things in a very different way. And that's hard. Anytime you change how people do something, there is a cost. And so it has been very interesting because there are many instances where I, I, you know, I talk to our outside counsel partners and I say, hey, how's, you know, how's that thing going? And they're like, well, it's great, but it was really interesting because I pitched your folks on an alternative fee arrangement and they're like, ah, could we just do it under uh, billable? And uh, <laughs> so that's obviously something that means that we on our side need to do a little bit more training. But I will note that this is where I, I somehow managed to uh, we, we picked up an ace. So Rebecca Benavidez, who I mentioned earlier, who is our director of legal business, she is expert at this. And one of the things that she has done is she has made the process of using AFAs, of using tools like comparative bidding, really painless and easy on our folks. And there's something else that happens that really introduces what we see as a major efficiency dynamic when we start going in the alternative fee arrangements in as much as and I, I will reflect upon my, my failings uh, when I was uh, a practicing attorney. 
it was often the case that when I had work, I would basically go to my partner and I'd say something like, Hey, you know, you know what I want. Here's, here's the budget, uh, do the right stuff. And I didn't give them adequate precision or specificity on what success looked like and what good looked like. And so trying to be faithful partners, they would often throw time at an effort at work that had little value for me. And if I had been more thoughtful about describing what I wanted and the specific things that I cared about and what indicia of success and quality really looked like, I think I would have gotten better work quality. I would have gotten something that was way more efficient. And so there are other benefits that come from the process that go beyond just the incentive structure. If we put more discipline and rigor around how we actually describe the work to be done, we get better work. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting example as well, too, because I think, uh, you know, especially if the incentives are in line, even if the in-house lawyer maybe doesn't describe kind of what success looks like very well. You've made it very clear then though with this new incentive structure that outside counsel should be asking those questions and making sure that they really understand what success looks like. That's correct. Yeah. So a lot of win-win opportunities there. One of the other things that you and I have spoken about before is uh, diversity and the benefits of diversity, but then also, you know, my observation across the legal industry generally is that this has been recognized as important for a long time, but far too little progress made. And how are you, how are you trying to address that? Well, we have many things that we are trying to do to help advance diversity. But it, again, the, the most important thing is to start with why. Uh, why do we care about diversity? And it really comes down to business for us. Uh, so if you look at our recent history, some of our greatest misses are a direct result of not having a broad diversity of perspectives brought to how we decide the products that we are going to make and how we then construct those products. And if we are going to go after our ambitious goal of empowering every person and organization on the planet to achieve more, we, we need the breadth of those perspectives brought to how we do our work and brought to the people who do our work. And that means both internally, and that also means our partners. And so the why matters. And there's another dimension that uh, informs a lot of what we do. And I, I recently gave uh, a presentation where I got into how we think about diversity in our outside council uh, partnerships. And a formative piece of uh, research came from McKinsey where they show that when you have more diverse teams, they deliver more innovation. And in the long run, they deliver you more value. And so it is often the case that I think when people start having questions about diversity, it goes to a lot of kind of pro-social uh, drivers, but for us, it's good business. And so then you get to the question of uh, how, how are we going to do this? Well, one thing we're doing is we are changing the incentives. So for our panel firms, uh, our U.S. domestic panel firms, we have uh, what we call the, the law firm diversity uh, program, which pays cash bonuses. So if you are successful in bringing more diverse talent to your firm's leadership, to the leadership of our matters, uh, and to uh, the work that you do for us, we will pay you more money. And that is money that comes to you that did not have any additional work attached. So it is the highest margin uh, you know, revenue that you will get from us. So that's one way that we're, we're trying to do that. But 
one thing that we're going to do over time is try to think about how we can do this at scale. And that's going to involve bringing more intelligence to our internal buyers. So the folks who have budget, we want them to have tools that help them see which firms are bringing diverse teams to do your work. And as we start getting more and more uh, precise and capable with our tooling, we can start bringing visibility to senior leadership so that they can see what are the buying patterns, what are the habits, what are what's going on here so that we can ensure that the policies that we think bring more value to us as an enterprise are actually happening in the small decisions. Because again, our folks here are really smart people and what they're trying to do is make the best decisions they can. And it's hard for them if we cannot help give them tools and processes that support that decision with data and really give them insights into what they could do a little bit differently that aligns to the policies that our senior leaders care about because it's such a core part of our business strategy. So we have a lot of work to do, but again, we're, we're trying to do some things and I think we're gonna have a, a foundation uh, and a core platform that will hopefully help us shape behavior at scale so that we get the outcomes that we're looking for. But it's just, it's gonna take a long time. Yeah. Well, one of the areas where I hear a lot of discussion too about diverse teams right now is the importance when we start talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, statistical learning approaches, being sure that we have diversity in our, in our teams, uh, putting those tools together. And so I wanted to ask kind of in connection on the technology piece, we've talked a lot about the people and process part and, and understanding the tasks that we do and, and improving efficiency, quality and outcomes. You, you also though did mention kind of the, the jobs to be done channeling Clayton Christensen. And there was recently a Richard Susskind article that kind of criticized the task oriented view as saying, you know, we're underestimating the role technology will play in the future that uh, if we think about outcomes, technology will produce many of the outcomes people are looking for. I mean, what's your view kind of on, you know, how we think about the role technology will play in the future? Uh, is it too overhyped or do we need to be more thoughtful about thinking the way the world's going to change? We always need to be thoughtful because there is a very real dislocation that happens whenever you introduce any type of new technology. Like that's that history is replete with that, right? At some point, I'm sure there was a large group of people making buggy whips and that was a valuable and necessary enterprise. And then probably fairly quickly, that was diminished in importance. And so the idea that we would make things that leave people behind if we're not thoughtful is something we can't lose sight of. And so I, I don't throw that away. But yesterday I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I was listening to uh, the A16Z podcast where, and I, I would have to dig it up, but I think it was Frank Chen and uh, some other folks were talking about really the future of kind of the modern factory and how will robots be integrated into that. And what they started describing really was that the most effective value is created by the partnership of machines and devices. And that there is still so, so, so much ambiguity and vagueness that happens in all types of work that you can't just unleash robots 
on this stuff because they don't adapt quickly enough. And even if you start thinking about AI, which moves from kind of a declarative rules-based approach to more of a stochastic approach that can potentially adapt as you have better signal, it still doesn't understand things that are outside of its context, right? That's stuff that humans are good at. And so the a lot of what they ended up talking about on this podcast was really, I, I think they called them cobots, which is humans working with machines and machines doing the things that are the the stuff that really wears us out and that our brains and our bodies are not designed to be effective at so to your original question there is absolutely a risk that we will not be thoughtful about how we will build experiences in the future we will not we will not bring diversity of perspectives, and I mean that across so many di dimensions, uh, you know, so socioeconomic, ethnographic, what have you, and that we will not design things that elevate humans in the way that we could. And so that's why it's important to think about that. And so I would, I would say that Microsoft as a company is trying to be very forward looking. And so we have a series of principles that really dictate how we are going to make AI products. And it tries to put humans at the forefront so that humans are being served. And so that's what we're going to try to do. But I, I would be lying if I, if I said, like, I knew where it was going. Like, this is mm -hmm. hard, interesting work, and we're going to be figuring it out over the next decade. Well, on, on some of that forward-thinking stuff about putting humans at the center, it, it seems to me like a lot of these problems are being worked on and I don't see any lawyers involved frequently. So, you know, what do you think lawyers ought to be doing so that they can be at the table and contributing on solving some of these problems that we are thinking about in the future? And, and I mean, including obvious things like the impact some of these technologies will have on rule of law. I mean, how do we get lawyers engaged with, with folks who are thinking about these problems? Well, I think one thing that lawyers do is we get in our own way, wherein we say... Well, I don't know. That seems like some nerd stuff I'm not really interested in. And so I'm just going to stay away or, oh, you know what? I, that seems like something that's really going to be an issue that's arbitrarily five years from now. And I'm not even sure if I'm going to still be doing this. So why don't I just kick that can down the road? And my concern is that we are becoming less relevant as a profession. And so I would implore everybody to go read Bill Henderson's uh, report delivered to the California State Bar, because one of the things that it highlights is that as the, the basket of goods bought by consumers, law is, con is increasingly diminished. And that's a real problem because, so, you know, somebody might argue if you work at a corporation, well, okay, but why do I care about that? Because I buy premium legal services. What's the big deal? Well, the law is an institution. It is infrastructure that we all use. And if society doesn't think that it has value, and if society starts to think that it has diminished relevance, then that impacts all of us. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about, you know, small claims issues or, you know, massive uh, torts litigation. When people start to lose faith and confidence in institutions that form kind of bedrock of, of our society, then that's a problem for all of us. And so that's where I would absolutely challenge the folks in our profession to, to really engage and, and to get curious and to start asking, like, how do these things work and start figuring it out? And just as importantly, start using the tools. The thing that I'm 
always amazed by is the <laughs> the kind of revulsion that many of our our folks uh, in in the in the legal bar have. We say, hey, I have something that might make you more effective. Like, but would I have to do something differently? Well, yes, yeah, so a little. Well, I, I've already learned how to use this this quill and feather, so I, I don't think I need to go figure out that new typey thing. So, if we want to be relevant. We need to engage with what's coming and not just discard it as a bunch of distraction that, you know, honestly, I can just go learn later. Because the other thing is the people who pick these tools up earlier, they're going to serve clients, be more effective, create more value, be successful. And a lot of what I think I see is behavior that just comes from being, as you noted, skeptical, probably a bit more conservative. And in many ways, those traits serve us, right? The looking backwards, seeing things that have broken before and and saying like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do that. That's a very valuable part of how we practice. But I worry that that is getting in the way of our forward-looking relevance. And so I think my my main takeaway would, would be imploring people to be curious and actually go play with the toys that are coming out there because they're interesting they're gonna be, it's going to be necessary to understand them to, to do your practice well, but also they can make you better and more effective. Well, what toys might you say we ought to be playing with? I mean, in some of my law school classes, we've built uh, expert systems in Neotologic and used ThinkSmart and used Q&A markup, done a little bit of Python coding in Jupyter Notebook, uh, done some data visualization in, in Excel and in, in Tableau and Power BI. I mean, do you have any specific examples you might throw out there? So you've just named several fantastic examples. Uh, so one thing that I am playing with a lot right now, and again, so I work for Microsoft, so the vendor uh, warnings apply, but I'm using uh, a tool we make called Flow, which is part of the Office 365 productivity suite. And if people have ever played with If This Then That or Zapier or other things like that, it basically lets you create these really simple automations. So for example, if you always want an email that comes in and goes to is sent to a certain um, a certain email address. So, for example, uh, if I'm subscribed to some uh, you know leadership alias, and I want you know Tom and Rebecca to see everything that comes through, I might normally have to manually say, "Oh, I saw the email came in," and I would forward it along. With tools like Flow, it lets you create automatic rules that let you, uh, you know, automatically forward that email along. And somebody who might say, like, well, that's good, but you could do that in Outlook. Absolutely, you could do that in Outlook. Flow lets you do so much more. You could have it automatically routed to Teams, or you can add, have it sent to your OneNote. There's so many things that you can do with that. And I'll, I'll give you one example. And, and by the way, you can do these things without writing any code, right? So you're basically dragging these blocks around and you're kind of wiring things in, but you don't have to write any code. And we used Flow to automate the sign-up process for our trusted advisor form. So I don't think people realized it, but what we had them do is we sent them an email and said, each presenting team gets six slots. We need the information about the people that you are bringing. Conventionally, how would we have done that? Email, right? So it turns into this constant, these, these ruthless transactions where we're trying to get all this information. We hosted a form 
the form triggered a flow. The flow created uh, basically an approval workflow that let us see who was this person submitting. And if it's like, yes, this person seems appropriate, then the person who was uh, on the event team could basically just click a button in their email. It says, yes, this is good. And then that flow would automatically forward the calendar invitation. It would add them to the list. And it would send a note to the sponsor saying like, yes, this person is good to go. One of the advantages of this is we now have this really clean data set of all the people who are attending. So it's easier to get their badges printed. And we start to understand who is interested in engaging with us because we took all that information and we have it in the SharePoint list. And so when we go to do it next year and we're thinking about who should we invite, like, well, these people seemed interested. Maybe we should invite them again. So, uh, you know, that's just one example. But I think you gave so many fantastic examples of, of tools that people should just go play with to see what are the problems that they have that maybe they could make better with any of the tools that you just described. Great, great examples. Uh, well, so we're getting close to the end of our time here. I, I wanted to ask, though, a question about you have your, your own podcast, and, and I've listened to several of the episodes. And on one of them, you talk about law students and junior lawyers developing a business plan for their careers. And I, I think you know, suggestions like that are so powerful because they really aim at empowering other people to kind of be proactive about this. But I don't know, what would you say to the law students and junior lawyers who are listening to this? I mean, how should they go about developing a business plan for their careers? Well, first, you should just have a hypothesis for what you think it is that you want to do. And you should be testing that, right? So you should think, okay, when I want to, you know, be an adult, what is the thing that I think I want to do? Realizing that you're probably going to get it wrong, but that's okay because you want something that you can test against. And so then you're, the, the obvious question is, well, how do I test this? Well, one expensive way to test is to actually go get jobs, right? You commit to something and you, you go do it and you kind of walk down the road and you, you see what it's like. A less expensive way to test that is to go talk to people, right? To read things that people write, to get a sense of what it is that they're doing. But ultimately, when I think about what I see, I, I, I see what I regard as a lot of um, not enough thinking about how people are going to differentiate. Because what I think I see and what I saw when I was in law school was a lot of people going through conventional paths, which is fine, but it doesn't often reflect the things that people are uniquely good at, right? So my approach in law school was a little bit different. And I'm not saying this was, this is, this works for everyone, but it became clear to me that my ability to differentiate on doing, you know, being on law review, uh, doing things like that, that wasn't going to work very well for me. So I did things a little bit differently. I decided to go do research with a couple professors and I wrote them custom software. And that ended up creating uh, customized data sets that I hope were valuable for them. But that was a way for me to go get relationship capital with those folks that gave me what I thought were very interesting stories to tell when I went on the interview loops. It was something that felt more authentic to me, but that was part of my plan, my business plan of how I'm going to differentiate. Now, I hope people don't hear this as don't focus on getting good grades, don't focus on getting, you know, markers of honorifics that, you know, demonstrate your excellence. But I guess I would say is at every point in your career, you, you want to have some theory about the investments that you're making that lead to where you want to be going. You want to have those hypotheses that you're testing and you want to make sure that you're doing something that you know, is hopefully leading to things that feel authentic for you. Because the other challenge that we have is 
when we get trapped into these paths that don't feel like things where we're, you know, really riding towards our highest, best purpose, your resilience gets very low and your stamina gets sapped. And so I walk downhill to work every day because I get excited to come in here and do the things that I'm I'm trying to do. And I promise you, they're not easy. So <laughs> it's not like it's, uh, it's, it's downhill because, oh, like it's just going to be a cakewalk today. But the work that I'm doing feels very fulfilling. And I will tell you that what I, the things that I'm doing right now are the fulfillment of things that I, I set out to do many years ago. And the process of writing down what I wanted to be doing and thinking about what are the steps between here, here and there, and just as importantly, what are the relationships and experiences mm -hmm. that I need have been critical in actually executing mm -hmm. on that. So just one last thought on that. If um, So many of the outside, the lawyers you're working with at outside law firms, many of them went to top 20 law schools, and we've seen some of those schools changing what they're teaching. What would be your suggestion to deans at, at, at some of the top law schools? I mean, what kind of things can they be doing to better prepare their students for the future? I find it interesting because the more prestige uh, is attached to the law school, that typically the more conventional the thinking around a lot of uh, the curriculum is. And as much as, well, you know, my my job is really to uh, produce uh, judges and academics and scholars. And so I'm not going to be overly burdened with a lot of, uh, let's just say, practical skills training, which I think is quite misguided because if we start thinking about who the amazing uh, practitioners, academics, uh, judges are in the future, they're probably going to be people who have facility and skills with tools that make them super powered, right? And so especially if, if you're an academic, you know, if you're doing anything that's uh, based on empirical research, wouldn't you want the capability to manufacture data that can really substantiate your research. And so I had a very concrete example of that, right? Wherein I'm going to try to be gentle when I say this, but I had these professors who wanted work from me and they didn't have many other ways to go get it. I was a very scarce resource. And I, I will admit, like, there aren't that many folks who start off uh, writing software and who go to law school. And I'm not saying that lawyers should learn how to write code, but many of the things that I did for them that took custom code, you know, those many years ago when I was in law school, a very clever person who just has curiosity could now build using tools like Excel. Maybe throw a little bit of Python at it, but I'm not even sure you have to these tools are becoming so much more approachable that why wouldn't you give your students these superpowers so that they can deliver new solutions, both in law school, but just as importantly, when they go into practice, wherever they are, that they can take those forward with them. Because if you don't give them these tools, the real challenge is they may not even know what they can do with them. And that's really where this ends up, because eventually, I, so I really probably shouldn't be writing my own code, if we're honest, like I should be finding other people to write my own code, but, uh, but I love it. I love it so much. The more important thing is I understand what I can ask for. And that's the critical part, realizing that, you know, there's not like a magic wand that you know is, is people just kind of sprinkle over things and like stuff happens like, oh, no, 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 there's a kind of a process. And these are the inputs. These are these, these are how things work. And when people have the ability to ask for that product that they need that can make them excellent, then 
that's really what you want to give them. And that's the level of facility I would, I would think people should try to achieve. Well, that's a really exciting way to, to finish things off, Jason. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Can you let us, our, our listeners know how they can find you? I know you're on Twitter, that you're a must follow on Twitter. Uh, how can our guests get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, on Twitter, my handle is Smuckwell, S-M-U-C-K-W-E-L-L. And I put out podcasts at uh, www.businessoflaw.net. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jason. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts and join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.